no adult has any right to lie to a child like that. It's dangerous. That's the voice of Chloe Cole, a courageous 18-year-old woman who is speaking out about how the healthcare industry is pushing kids into damaging sex change experiments. Today, we're going to hear the rest of her story, as well as an update on her lawsuit against Kaiser Permanente. Welcome to Speak Up Virginia, equipping you to speak up on the life, family, and freedom issues that matter most to you. From the Family Foundation, I'm your host, Candy Cushman, with our special guest, Chloe Cole. Well, welcome everybody. I'm glad to be back with Chloe Cole for the second part of this series. Chloe, thanks for joining us for another segment. Yeah, thank you for having me again. It's been a wonderful conversation. Just thank you for opening up your heart, just being who you really are. So I'm looking forward to continuing the rest of this story today. But first, we're going to start out with some fun conversation, get to know you a little bit better again. And I thought it would be fun to do a rapid fire question on your favorite things. So you, you ready? Yeah. Favorite color? Um, that's a hard one. <laughs> We're not doing rapid fire, Chloe. <laughs> <laughs> you see, I'm not a rapid fire type of person. That's I true. like getting into I like getting in depth. You are a processor. It's more about how colors are coordinated rather than individual <laughs> color, you know? All right, that is such a creative perspective right there. <laughs> so it depends on what color is coordinating with what. Yes. Um all right. What are your favorite color combinations? Mm. Maybe like pink and blue, which kind of sucks because it's like the trans flag colors, <laughs> the, the toothpaste flag colors. That's okay. We can reclaim pink and blue. Yes, yes. yes. I also like stuff that's like uh, like holographic. Yeah. What does that mean exactly? Um, how do I put this? Like it kind of like, like if you if you move it, then like the it reflects differently. Oh, light it reflects like, like different prism, colors. Yeah, prism. yeah, yeah. Okay, fun. All like right. Like opal. Favorite sport? Rollerblading. Oh, cool. I didn't expect that. So you do that in California? Yeah. I mean, I can't, like, do any tricks or anything like mm. that. I kind of just do it as, like, a casual thing. Just, like, listen to music and enjoy myself. Okay. All right. Favorite fashion, since you mentioned you like fashion? Um, well, I'll probably get into a little bit more into this later. But mm. I really like stuff that's, like, right now I like stuff that's very future-oriented, mm. like, okay. technology-oriented. Kind of mod? Yeah. Mod. <laughs> I don't know that. <laughs> like modern as opposed oh. to traditional. Yeah. Um, you can consider it modern. Yeah. All right. We're getting the, the <clears throat> generation gap here. <laughs> <laughs> so describe your fashion, kind of what you're talking about. Um, well, fashion has actually been kind of a big part of my detransition and just like the journey back from trying to present myself as a boy. Mm -hmm. And also like it's kind of giving me something to focus on you know something to build yeah and uh i've kind of switched between like different aesthetics over like the past two years kind of rapidly like at first i was going for something like very girly very very feminine and uh i've been experimenting a little bit more and i think i've kind of find, found something that I'll stick with because there is like an actual philosophy around it and I do mm. want to create a brand of my own. One last question. We know you've traveled to at least 20 states, right? Look. I've lost count. Yeah. It's, it's somewhere right, around so there. <laughs> we want to hear your favorite state and your least favorite state, your worst state. And I think there's been some lobbying from staff about certain states. So just ignore all that. <laughs> and your true opinion. Well... I think my most favorite and least favorite state 
has to be just one state and that's california because it's home you know yeah like all my family's there i grew up there yeah and it's it's so beautiful and so varied like there's so many different biomes so many different people and places to explore there but someday it's probably not going to be home anymore you know because we've got all the crazy politics and social issues and all the homeless Mm. and it's getting expensive Mm. like it's slowly becoming more and more unlivable and i saw the number of kids coming out as trans is astronomically higher in california alone yeah i mean it's kind of the the heart of this yeah but since it is a big state like we have all that influence and it's spreading all across the u.s like a lot of people think like oh it's just a california thing like this will never happen to my kids or in my community Mm -hmm. But it's everywhere, and it's actually even worse mm-hmm. in, like, some of the deep red states than mm-hmm. it is in, like, certain areas of California. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like I said in, in last week, I didn't even learn—I I, I never encountered anything about this, about transitioning or the LGBT or anything like that in class, mm-hmm. having just having graduated last year. It was never even brought up. But they're teaching some of this. Like, they're introducing, like, pornographic books— Mm-hmm. into schools, into, like, communities in rural Tennessee. And we can see the real results of that because there are now thousands of kids. There are thousands of people it, that just jumped just in the last few years identifying as LGBTQ. And it, it's pretty significant, the radical jump, when you look at the stats. What do you think about that, Chloe, um, the fact that, that it has really almost become an epidemic among youth? And it's... It, and it's really hitting girls hard. You see that it's more girls identifying as trans. Why do you think we're seeing that jump and it's hitting girls so hard? It's not hard to see why. I mean, a lot of those girls have, like, sexual trauma, were, like, victims of sexual abuse or assault or stalking. Um, a lot of them have body image issues and hate their their breasts, their their hips, either because they feel like they're they're developing too soon, too young, or because they feel like they're not developed enough because they're not catching up with their peers. And mm-hmm. a lot of them are late bloomers. A lot of them feel like they just can't be feminine enough to be a girl. Mm-hmm. And there's definitely a social contagion aspect to it. It's absolutely an epidemic, of, as, used, as you've described it. Um, that's largely where this is being perpetuated. That's where it came from for me. Let's start with, for this segment, your journey toward transitioning, because last week we really covered how you reached the point of identifying as a male, but I'd really like for our audience to hear how you started that journey toward walking out of that, toward detransitioning. How did it begin for you when you began to realize this is not a healthy place for me and I think I want to actually embrace how I was created as a woman and maybe even have kids one day? Um... Well, I actually started to get worse the further I got into my transition. And while I wasn't suicidal before I started to transition, it, um, I think, like, the, sh- the stress of socially transitioning and of taking extremely high doses of androgens as a biological female really started to weigh down on me, and it made it so that I mean, I couldn't even focus my studies. Like, my grades started to suffer. Um, eventually, I started 
experiencing suicidal thoughts. And I was diagnosed with major depressive disorder, which uh, they started medicating me for um, using uh, an off-label medication called Wellbutrin, which also sucked and also made me worse. Um, but it wasn't until after my surgery <clears throat> that I started to realize, like, I don't know if I can keep doing this. That's when the negative feelings around transitioning specifically started to really come in. And I think that's because it was such a shock to my system. It really woke me up just to how brutal mm. this was on my body. Mm -hmm. um, I, at first, I was pretty satisfied with my mastectomy. And uh, that was pretty early in. Um, let, and me, let me back up a little bit. Let's. I want to hear more detail about this process. So let's start at the beginning there. And let me just say to parents, we are going to get into some medical details here. So if you have little ones around and uh, you want to be sensitive to that, now's maybe a good time to put them in a different place because we're going to get into some of the raw parts of this. Um, so, Chloe, what what happened first? So it started with hormone blockers or what, what was Puberty the blockers. Which uh, the actual medication is called Lupron. Um, it like blocks the production of sex hormones in the body. Okay. And then I was put on uh, testosterone in injectable form. Mm -hmm. And I took uh, an injection in the arm every week. It was subcutaneous, meaning that like uh, it was injected from the fat. And so um, I actually had my mom help me with this because I was pretty queasy um, whenever we did this. Like I'm, I'm. It took a while for me to get used to it. And I couldn't really bear the thought of doing it on my own. Mm -hmm. So, like, every week we'd alternate between arms, like, pinch out, like, a little area of fat just to create, like, a little bubble for the for the, um, for the the gel to go into mm -hmm. and be absorbed into my body. And this is 12? Like, the injections begin 13. at what age? 13. 13. I was okay. about midway through my eighth grade year. At age 15, double mastectomy, how do you get from injections to, to that, to having your breasts removed? So... After I was diagnosed with depression, um, I started getting, I also started getting really sick of uh, having to wear a binder every day, which if you don't, for those of you who don't know what a binder is, it's like a, it has, it's like a, it's, it kind of looks like a tank top. It comes in either like full body or half body. And in the chest area, there's like a compression fabric to, uh, it's used by like males with gynecomastia or women who are like cross-dressing or like playing a role or mm -hmm. like doing like their, their, their drag kings. Mm -hmm. um, and by, and more recently by uh, trans identified females. So you um, started, um, or you started wearing the chest binder? No, I started wearing it when I was about 13. Okay. After I started testosterone. And then, so how do you get to where you just want to remove them completely? Well, I knew that I, well, I thought that I wanted to do that from a, pretty early point in my transition but uh I was just going with like a I was just binding for a few years and it was uncomfortable because it is like a tight garment and it was I had the appropriate size and everything but it was super uncomfortable mm -hmm. like it would stick to me while like I was working out or like swimming were there complications from just that um at the time I didn't think so because I wasn't getting like any pain from it like a lot of the other girls I interacted with who used one They'd get like uh, upper back pains, like uh, shoulder pains, chest pains, rib mm -hmm. pains and such. I never got anything like that. It fit me like a glove. Mm -hmm. So I didn't think there was anything wrong, but it actually deformed my ribs a little bit. Mm -hmm. They kind of flare out a little bit just at the bottom. 
Well, what I remember from hearing you share your story at the Virginia Beach press conference was that, you know, you just had a relatively small amount of, um, I guess, counseling session or something before they rushed you into these procedures. Oh, it was pathetic. Tell, tell me about that. Um, it was about, like, six months between my initial gender dysphoria diagnosis and actually being put on blockers, and then a month between being put on blockers and my first testosterone shot. And about two years of taking testosterone before I got my mastectomy. Mm. Um, so how much conversation is there for you to prepare for actually having, removing your female organs? Um, or not body enough. parts, I should say. Not enough. And really, no matter how much information you give a kid to a kid on this. Yes, like kid, 15. They're not going to be able to really conceptualize all of it, how it's going to affect them in the short term and the long term like the possibility that they might regret it and all the potential complications that come from it um most of the complications that i'm experiencing today were not even listed on my forms and i had no idea that there were a possibility and you said the thing that really struck me is you said you had not even had sex education when you're doing these medical um, procedures i mean i did but it was pretty pretty bare bones and i when i was 13 i hadn't I had like a few more classes to go. Yeah. I hadn't even had sex ed that year yet. Um, it was at the very end of the year. And I didn't know what like uh, like all the organs in the female reproductive mm -hmm. tract, which they also didn't teach me in, in school. Mm -hmm. I learned that from the internet, from a meme, mm -hmm. which is an entirely different story. But So, so at 13, 15, you don't even know, you didn't understand at that age what your organs were, where they are, and yet yeah. you're, you're- I didn't even know what ovulation was. I didn't know that was a thing. All I knew was like, oh, there's a period, and then somehow like at some point you can get pregnant when you're not on your period. And yet, I didn't know that yeah. there were four, four stages in the menstrual cycle. So that's, I find that just incredible that they would rush you down this medical path without you even, as a child, understanding that basic yeah. knowledge. Yeah. I mean, not to mention I was hardly physically developed either. Like, right. I, I started puberty fairly young. I was nine, so I was about, like, four years into puberty. But, uh, well, um, my periods weren't even regulated yet. Mm -hmm. Like, I was only having about, like, one every three to four months. I think I'd only been having them for about, like, a year or so by the time that I started on blockers. Well, Chloe, you've made some really strong statements about the fact that no child under 18 should be pushed into these procedures. Tell me why you're so passionate about that. I mean, it's pretty obvious why. Like, kids, they don't really have very much knowledge or experience of the world. And no matter how much they know, they're just, they're not developed enough to make decisions around such things. Like, it... It takes a lot of experience and I think a completely developed brain to and like just just a few years living in the world, like some time to introspect, like maybe whether you want to have children or or a family one day, because mm -hmm. this is something that's gonna take away your ability to have natural children for the rest of your life. And and you went even further than that, you said it shouldn't even be considered an option. Much no, yeah. Not for kids. It's dangerous to do this to kids because like I said, they don't, they can't really fully appreciate the risks and benefits that could come from this. And they're still developing physically, mm -hmm. um, psychologically, 
um, sexually. Mm-hmm. And you can't just stop a natural process like puberty. Mm-hmm. Like it's not just the sex organs and secondary sex characteristics that appear during puberty. There's also like a lot of brain development and development of other organs. So it's really dangerous. And I've seen also other statistics that show that if kids are allowed to progress along their natural development, if, if they're experiencing gender confusion, um, they, they feel like they want to identify as, as different than the sex they were born with, but if they're allowed to continue their natural development into puberty, I'm seeing stats over the last few years showing that, I mean, big percentages, 60, 80, even 90%, they, if, if they're allowed to progress naturally, do embrace their God-given biological gender, sex. Um, what What's going on with that? That even though you have that, those facts, those science, they're being ignored by the medical community. Right. So historically, children have tended to outgrow their gender dysphoria by the time that they're finished with puberty. Um, a lot of activists will say like, oh, those are outdated studies from a few decades ago. Like the new studies, they show that most children go on to transition, but it doesn't really take into account the fact that, well, we have like a different culture around us now, and it's there's more like a social pressure to undergo this. And back then, it was more like a niche thing that wasn't, well, of course it wasn't like as, as accepted as, as it is now, but it also wasn't pushed as much. And these kids now, they're, their parents are being told to affirm their identity and many of them have already gone on like puberty blockers. So like as soon as you start any of that, that basically guarantees that your kid is going to move on to transition. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. Yeah. I mean, once a kid's started on puberty suppressants or even once they start being affirmed and start like trying to follow the lifestyle of the opposite sex, there's basically a sunk cost fallacy in that like like either socially or like medically, like, well, you've already started this, like you've already changed this part of your life and it's going to be difficult and possibly humiliating to try and go back. There's a lot of pressure there. And yet you had the courage to go back. What, what gave you the courage to take that bold step? Um, well, after my mastectomy, the regret just slowly started to come in. At first, it was about my changed appearance from the hormones and the changes to my body and looking more masculine. And also just like the difficulties of feeling like a male role in socialization. It was quite lonely for me in my experience. Um, I felt like I was trapped because well, I guess in more than one way, I felt trapped. Like as a guy, like I couldn't like wear makeup or like be as expressive in a lot of ways. And I couldn't even, I felt like a lot of time I couldn't even talk about like a lot of my, my personal problems. Cause that just like, I'm supposed to man up, you know? Like I'm not supposed to be talking about those things. Because of the testosterone, it was harder to cry and like process like negative emotions such as like being sad, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, I could like, it was, it was, more difficult to like get to the point of crying and once I did I could do it for hours with no release like I would feel the same afterward Mm. if not worse and 
eventually it just kept going down this downward spiral and I just justified this in my head like well maybe I'm just not either you know maybe I'm just like maybe I'm non-binary maybe I'm neither male nor female maybe that's just what I what I am but I kept struggling and it wasn't until uh in my psychology class my junior year that I was uh towards the end of the uh the course I was learning about uh like parenting um and childhood psychology and development that I was like it, it it was like a whole new world to me like I I knew absolutely nothing about any of this before I knew that well maybe I might want to have kids one day and I was told that I could potentially lose my ability to to birth and conceive and such but I was 13 years old what 13 year old no. is thinking about that yeah none yeah. <laughs> none Not and <laughs> I I thought naively because they never they never even brought up like the like uh fertility preservation options for me mm. it was never presented as an option ever and so I just had some naive preconceptions about it like well I mean if we already have this technology then it must be pretty advanced right like I they could just like extract the the egg cells out of my body and just I could just have like a surrogate and I didn't know that it was a lot more complex than that mm. that I might not be able even be able to do that and even if I was like it's a pretty arduous process like mm -hmm. you have to go on a pretty strict like a uh, hormone regimen like high amounts of estrogen it's extremely tough on the body both surrogacy and uh egg extraction and freezing and such was um, there a particular moment where you decided okay i'm taking the, these steps and i'm gonna to detransition or, or was it a gradual journey yeah it was uh it was after like i after that course it was like Wow, this is something that I, I want to do one day. I want to have kids of my own. Mm -hmm. Like, this is so special. I didn't realize just how, how special this was. But am I going to be able to uh, after years of being on hormones? And mm -hmm. that was a scary thought to me. But it was also, like, deeply painful mm -hmm. that I'm not going to be able to breastfeed. I won't even have the option as an adult because of a decision that I was uh, unable to make as a kid. Mm -hmm. I'll never know what that's like. And that was what took me out of it because it was so immensely painful. Mm -hmm. I couldn't keep living on like that. I couldn't keep doing it. And just a few weeks afterward, uh, I took my last testosterone shot. And after that, I just kind of laid in bed for a week or so because I didn't know what to do with myself. And what would, what did your parents say when you told them I, I need to go back the other direction? They, I think they kind of saw it coming. Yeah. Just gradually over time. Mm -hmm. But they, they did their best to, to help me. They didn't push mm -hmm. back on it, of course. But, but they were they were shocked. Mm -hmm. They they uh they probably thought I wasn't gonna make it, honestly. Mm -hmm. Like they I didn't even know how I was gonna pick up my life mm -hmm. after that. But, but for like but a here it, you are today, <laughs> courageous, a lot of people's young girls heroes, and you are making a difference worldwide. I hope so. What do you credit to giving you the courage and the hope? to make that decision and give hope to a lot of other people 
Um, I mean, I think part of it is that I've always been a really stubborn person, like from very <laughs> early childhood. Like my parents would always get very frustrated with me about several things. <laughs> I can relate to that. Sometimes stubbornness helps, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's it's a it's a blessing and a curse. Yeah, but uh, it's a blessing in this instance. Um, when I initially stopped transitioning, um, just like talking about the regret of what I've been through, and uh, how transitioning harmed me, how like the pain of how much I regretted it, and how I felt like I was duped by my doctors, mm. I was getting attacked left and right by members of the trans community and these are people that celebrated me more and more the further i went into it especially with like after after my top my mastectomy which they called top surgery and they they seemed so happy for me and then once i was out of it and it caused me pain just talking about that was enough to make them turn their backs on me is that still the case today Oh yeah, absolutely. It's even worse now than I'm like on on the on the stage and such, but it hurt then so much because I thought these were people who loved me. These were people who I thought I was as part of a group of, mm-hmm. and now I was being rejected just because of my personal experience with it. Mm-hmm. And these people said some really rough things to me. Like some there was there are a few people who were like continually harassing me. There was one person who told me like it was. Quite a few people actually told me like it was all my fault like i'm stupid that i should have known better that i should have known exactly what uh what i was doing to myself at 13 years old there's even a person who tried to like gaslight me into thinking like that we had a conversation about this that i should have known the difference between real gender dysphoria really being an actual oh, transgender like, person like you're a fraud to begin with is kind of what we had saying. no such conversation there was there was not we never had a conversation like that mm. And yeah, this because... is all coming from people who never actually went on these uh, these treatments or, like, were very early in the process mm-hmm. of doing so. And I think, like, a large part of it came from the fact that uh, a lot of them are afraid. Like, they see somebody who is seemingly in the most ideal conditions, like mm-hmm. transitioning young, mm-hmm. uh, supportive family and friends and such, and they're not only jealous but also afraid because they'd see, like it still was a failure for me. Mm. And so they kind of decided to take it out on me. And yeah. like I, after some time, like I, at first I like gave in to their, to their will to basically shut me up because I wanted to stop dealing with all the mean stuff they were saying mm. to me. And I was just 16 years old. Like it was a lot for me. Yeah, I was just being bombarded with, with hate mm. from this group that I was once a part of that once supported me. So but, first you abided by it, and then yeah, yeah, and then um, I just started to wake up slowly and slowly. Mm-hmm. This is what uh, I guess some feminists call peaking, and that like you see the reality of the situation of of uh, transitioning in general, like the community, mm-hmm. the uh, the treatments, mm-hmm. the actual act of transitioning, mm-hmm. and. I just couldn't turn a blind eye to it and I couldn't I just couldn't shut up because like I knew there were other people out there like me who are going through the exact same thing of being put on these awful treatments after being in a very vulnerable mindset or at a very vulnerable age Mm. and having been lied to there by the doctors and then coming out of it with regret and then being attacked Mm -hmm. by a community that was once theirs and 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 that yeah that's why you're speaking out about something else 
what, which is the healthcare industry. Yes. Tell us about this lawsuit that you have filed against Kaiser Permanente and why you felt the need to do that. Yeah, um, from the very beginning of my detransition, of my detransition, I knew that I wanted to pursue a lawsuit, but I didn't think that it was a possibility even. I, I thought like, well, my mom and dad had, they were required to sign off on these procedures and it was all consented to on paperwork. And well, how, how, how would that, how would I even make it? There's just no way. And so I just kind of, I thought about it for a little bit and then I gave up on it um, until like I started speaking up. Uh, I just kind of shied away from that. But uh, Harmeet Dillon, um, who works with the uh, Center for American Liberty, um, reached out to me one day through email. And uh, I spoke to her a little bit. Um, I was still 17 at the time, so I couldn't like legally do anything on my own. But once, it was like just before my birth, my, my 18th birthday, and we were just kind of discussing what my options were and whether I was interested in a lawsuit. And I mean, right away, I just saw like how incredible she is and like all the work that Center for American Liberty and uh, Dylan Law has done. And how could I not take that opportunity? Because I not only want to get justice for myself because I was wronged by my doctors. This was malpractice. This was fraud on their part. And now like they have been refusing to take care of me really. I'm dealing with some pretty gnarly complications. But I was also like thinking about other people like I don't think a whole lot of other people are really getting this opportunity right now for that. And I want other people to have the chance to get justice for what happened to them. Chloe, this lawsuit has been in national news for the last few weeks. What do you really want the outcome of this to be? I mean, you, you kind of touched on that you want justice for more than just yourself, but with people seeing all these headlines, what is the outcome you want for holding the healthcare industry accountable? I want them to stop doing this to kids. I want them to be held accountable for the damage that they're causing to these children, to their bodies, their minds their families, mm -hmm. they should never ever be performed on children and I hope it never will be ever again. Mm. Well, I think that's a good place to end with some encouragement for people because we talked a little bit about, you know, last week that if you can have the courage to do this journey that you have done, and I just want to stop and say, Chloe, we, we admire you so much, your courage, the fire inside of you to speak truth, the fact that you're speaking truth to power and exposing these lies, thank you for doing that. I hear from so many people. When you came out to Virginia Beach, we heard from so many people, parents, students. We heard from parents saying, Chloe's my daughter's hero, you know. So, um, well, let me ask you, what, what are some of the most encouraging conversations you've had when you talk to people that are affected by what you're doing? Um, well, I spoke to the mom of Sage. Uh, Michelle Blair. Yeah, and she, she told me, like, She's like showing her daughter some of my videos and her daughter really looks up to me, which is really sweet. I didn't, I didn't expect that actually. Um, and recently um, I, was in, I was in Massachusetts for a speaking event with TPUSA and there was a father who came up to me who said that um, he's struggling with this with his daughter and uh, 
she's like he he's shown her some of my some of my content and it's helped her to slowly sort of lean towards the path of desistance. Mm. Like she, at first she was very adamant about this and she had a very strained relationship with her father. Like she rejected him. She never, she swore never to, to be around him. And now like she's warming up to him. They spend time together. And she's even said to him like, I guess I'm starting to see that this is something that I don't have to live this way. It, it's, it, it's just incredible. And- how would it have been different for you? Not that everything would have changed, but if you would have had one voice like yourself out there that when you're online, social media, you saw that. Um, I mean, it's really hard to say what could have been, you know, but I feel like if there are more people like me, like my detransition friends, who are people who, a lot of them were kind of like offbeat people like a lot of them didn't really have like a a lot of friends in in school, but like they had like they're just they're cool people. And like just seeing somebody who I can relate to who's speaking out against this, I feel like it could have helped. Mm-hmm. Like just somebody who is young mm-hmm. and like is like kind of like just their own person and also just like showing showing courage and just talking about the truth of the matter I feel like it could have it could have helped me greatly and I'm just trying to be that kind of role model I guess that I wish I had back then. Chloe on that note what can people do to help you get your message out the truth that people need to hear? I think this is a battle that everybody as many people as possible should be involved in because it's not about politics. It's not about some obscure ideology. This is something that's affecting entire institutions, namely healthcare and psychiatry and our schools. And it's affecting children, adolescents, their families. It's tearing them apart. And it's not something that we can look away from anymore because it's everywhere. And it needs to be stopped in its tracks. Thank you, Chloe. I can't tell you how powerful that was and just how moving your story is. And I don't know about all of you listening, but I, I cannot hear that and not be moved to action. So please share this with your family members, your church members, school officials. People need to hear this. Uh, Chloe, before we close out today, tell us, you, you said you're starting a new podcast. Tell us about that and how they can check it out. Um, not really a new podcast, but I'm doing like a, an interview series of other people who have transitioned and detransitioned. Um, I've, uh, I've got a YouTube channel of my own. Um, I have the same username across, my, uh, across all my platforms. Um, Twitter's my main one. I also use Instagram. Um, my username is... I should probably have this up on the screen because yeah, some people we'll get kind of confused as to like for the, YouTube viewers. the spelling. But C-H-O-O-O-C-O-L-E. Or you can just find me by looking up Chloe Cole. All right. Awesome. Well, thank you again for joining us and taking the time again to just, I know it's not easy to share that and you do it over and over. Thank you for sharing it with us. Thank and you. thank you everyone for joining us today, for joining Speak Up Virginia. Remember to share our Speak Up Virginia playlist and give us a review on Spotify and Apple to help us reach more people with these important messages. And we'll see you next time. Remember, we are stronger when we speak together.